0: The most important of the Buddhist celebrations through the year is called Vesak, V-E-S-A-K. And it's Buddha Day, and it represents the birth, the enlightenment, and the death of the Buddha. So it's celebrating all of that wrapped up in one. And some people might wonder how those three events, birth, enlightenment, and death, end up fitting together as a spiritual holiday, because they're such different occasions and different tones But it's really revealing that through each of those in the mythology of the Buddha and his life, each of those events actually had the same message. And that was the message of our potential, each one of us here, our potential to realize truly who we are, not as a a kind of a mental understanding but an inside-out sense of the sacred presence that really is our very essence. And so, tonight we'll be exploring a bit of Visakh and the meaning of Visakh and honoring it and we'll do, I'll speak some, we'll do um, the refuge ceremony which is, it doesn't matter whether you're Buddhist or not, it's our typical kind of celebration of the pathways home, the pathways that really carry us back into sacred presence maybe a word on um, the mythology or story that comes at really at the center of most religious traditions and I'll just say personally the only value I find in them is if in some way we find ourselves in that story and so that's my intention tonight that as we kind of explore some of the, I'm plucking some of the Key pieces of the um, mythology in the Buddha's story, and I call it mythology because who knows what's true in terms of what really happened? But there's some some themes, some archetypal themes that run through that are powerful and inform us about our own capacity to transform and awaken, and that's where it's meaningful to me. There's a a story I sometimes like to share of a woman who decided she wanted to go go to India and see her guru, see the guru, that's what she called it. And she told her travel agent that, I want to go see the guru. And her travel agent said, you know, she was getting older and, she, and he said, can't you go to Florida, you know, like you usually, no, I want to go see the guru. And so she made all the travel arrangements, which were not little. She had to go to India and then take a train across India and then a kind of a bus through Nepal and up into the mountain region and so on very long and she was warned very early on that this particular guru when you saw him you could only say three words but she says okay I want to see him anyway so she took the, she flew over the oceans and she took the train across India and she you know the the jeeps and so on and at each time those that knew about the encampment and this this particular guru said you know it's just all you can do is say three words and she said it's all right I've got to see him finally she gets to where the tents are and all the the disciples and everything and stands in line and again right before she walks into the tent where the guru is um, the attendant reminds her again of the rules it's all right it's okay she walks in and there he is with his wispy beard and saffron robes and she looks him in the eye and she says Sheldon, come home." (laughs) And I've always loved that story because, in a way, it's changing in the West, but we still have a notion that spirituality and mysticism, that the deep and profound experiences that really awaken our spirit Happened somewhere else in some exotic place or some other time hundreds th- of you know, years ago, and, or to other people. So, I kind of wanted to start tonight by saying Visak. You know, this celebration of the Buddha's birth and enlightenment and death is really a celebration and an at- attention to your potential. To really discover this radiance, this luminosity of spirit, and not to wait not to wait that 's the reason that there is such a thing as these holidays and spiritual in the spiritual traditions it 's not to wait, so the Buddha. Walked the earth 25, 2600 years ago, and one of the metaphors I think that most um, expresses his message and his life actually was some came out of an event recently. Um, some of you might remember me sharing this that in the north of Thailand's ancient capital Sukhothai in the main hall of a temple, they rested this huge, huge statue of the Buddha, and it was not a beautiful Buddha. This was a clay and plaster statue but huge and people really revered it mostly because it had survived great storms and invading armies and changes of government and so on. But about six, seven years ago, they found these big cracks because of the dry seasons. (coughs) And so one enterprising monk took this little pen flashlight and peered into the crack. And what shone back at him was the light of gold. He kind of looked into another crack and again, gold. And it turned out, because they took off the clay and plaster, that under the covering was the largest gold Buddha in Southeast Asia. And you can go see this now. Anyway, the monks believed that this work of art had been covered with plaster and clay to help it survive through periods of conflict and unrest. And that in a similar way, we cover over our innate purity to make it through in a difficult world, whether it's our culture, or our parents, or what's happening on the globe, it's difficult. And so we all have our, our particular, I sometimes think of it as a spacesuit that we take on to kind of make it through with difficult environments. And the suffering, and this is the suffering that the Buddha talked about, is that we come to believe we're the spacesuit, the coverings, our defenses, our way of presenting to others. We come to believe that that's what we are and we forget that luminosity of heart and spirit that really is our essence. And his whole life was about a remembering of that and when we say that we realize that's what we are if I realize that, that's what I realize that's what you are, that's what we are that when we look at someone, who's looking back at us is that same presence. So the Buddha's birth was filled with symbolism. It was the custom in those days for a woman to return to her parents' home to give birth. And the Buddha's mother, Mahamaya, was in a forest on her way home to her parents' place when she was admiring this Ashok tree and she suddenly felt unsteady and took hold of a branch of the ashok tree i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right to support her and a moment later still holding the branch she effortlessly of course gave birth to a radiant son you know how it is <laughs> and this son was was born in a kind of wholeness and maturity where he could actually take some steps and as this as the myth goes he took seven steps that represented the four directions plus the four directions that are traditional plus up and down and here. And with each step a lotus blossom flowered. And so throughout the myths of uh, Buddhism, the lotus is this and the flower is a symbol of the unfolding of wisdom and that it's in each of us and that the flowering is the flowering of our own awakening heart and mind. So we're born, it said, as the Buddha is born, with a kind of natural nobility out of the earth and the stars And we each are born with this potential to blossom in infinite ways, that there is no limit. I like the way the Tibetan Book of the Dead puts it, it says, O nobly born, speaking to each of us, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind, its shining and deathless. So the Buddha was named Siddhartha. That's one who has brought about all good. And Gotama is his family name. And a few days after his birth, the holy man uh, visited his parents and said, oh, that he was gonna be the most exceptional of adults who's either gonna become a great king or a great holy man. And his dad said, fine, he can do the holy man at the end of his life, but he's gonna be a great king. Made that decision for, for Gotama for Siddhartha. And to ensure it, he created all these ties to the world. And those of you familiar with the, the Buddha's story, his father created all these pleasure palaces that the Buddha grew up in with, um, beautiful, with musicians and beautiful women and sights, fountains and ponds and just filled with beauty in all ways and shutting out the world totally. And of course, he and was given a most beautiful wife and he had a child, but he wasn't allowed to go out. That was the problem. So this is the archetypal setup, that for each of us, in some way, our culture, our family, we, there's an effort to block out anything that's unpleasant or wrong. We run from unpleasantness and try to cling on to pleasure. So the palaces are kind of the structure of our ego and the effort not to face mortality not to face the truth of, of change. And we build our, our sense of self around controlling our experience. Every one of us, if we begin to look closely, has this kind of internal structure that's very much moment by moment trying to ensure comfort and protect ourselves from the what's outside the palace gates, the inevitable. So what happened to Siddhartha is the reality of impermanence broke through in the form of four heavenly messengers. His charioteer Chana uh, took him outside of the palace gates, he broke the rules, he kind of snuck him out and when he went outside the palace gates the Buddha, our Siddhartha then was exposed to an old man, a sick person, a corpse and a holy man. And with each of those there was a shock and a horror because he didn't realize that people got old and looked decrepit. And he didn't realize that people got sick and their bodies fell apart and he hadn't faced, he didn't know about death. And he didn't know about a holy man, one who in the face of all that had found some sense of peace. So this was one of those um, disillusionments. And in the same way, and again I'm just just to look at this as the journey, the spiritual journey, each of us, some very, very early, some don't have the much of the pleasure palaces. Very, very early there's a, a, a very jarring kind of experience of betrayal and hurt. And some a bit later on, whether it's our bodies giving way or whether it's losing someone we love or a job or a relationship, That's dukkha. That's what the Buddha described as in the first noble truth, that inevitably we experience, because things change, a fundamental kind of restlessness and dissatisfaction and a sense that around the corner something else is going to happen, which it will, because we're going to die. So this is what the Buddha experienced in that dramatic way and this is what each of us experiences in our lives. And so the big question, this is the big one for all of us, is when we begin to encounter things falling apart, some sense of groundlessness, some recognition that life will not cooperate, it's not going to work the way we want it to, how do we respond? How do we respond? And for the Buddha, he was very motivated to find the source of genuine freedom in the face of suffering. But his way of being motivated was still a little out of balance. And what he did was he spent six years after that doing very extreme austerities. He starved himself and he did these yogic feats that really messed up his body, all these deprivations, you know, trying to subdue the sense desires. In other words, he tried real hard by depriving himself and punishing himself to find some sort of an inner freedom. And so it becomes interesting to say, well, how do we respond to this deep internal kind of existential quakiness of knowing that everything happens and it's not always the way we want it? And in some way responding to, for many of us, we go on these perpetual self-improvement projects. There's some internal idea of something's wrong with me and I have to fix it. And it's behind so much that we do that we're, try- that we're on a track of trying to become a better person. And we go to back to grad school or we get into working out in a n- new way or another diet. And it's not to say any of these things are bad, it's just that there's a kind of striving and an undercurrent of something's wrong with me and I'm on a track trying to get somewhere. Does that resonate, that we're on our way somewhere? It's like, some of you might remember, one of my favorite cartoons has a family on, and their they're parents are on one camel, the kids are on a second, and the, their possessions are all tied to the third camel. And what you see in this cartoon is the father's turned around and he's responding to one of his children saying, will you stop asking if we're almost there? We're nomads for crying out loud. <laughs> so I like that. So one of our ways of responding to this sense of things are falling apart, we've got to do something," is we do our good personhood projects. We try to try to act well. We try to look good. Another way is we try to be right. We're very, very attached to our views, and there's a big investment. The sense of self is very, very invested in being right. A little girl was talking to her teacher about whales and the teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though it was a very large mammal, its throat was very small. The little girl stated that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human, it was physically impossible. The little girl said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. The teacher asked, what if Jonah went to hell? The little girl replied, then you ask him. (laughs) So what I'm really getting at here is that we, every one of us has a strategy in the face of that. We perceive what the Buddha perceived. We recognize aging, sickness, and death. And we have a, we all have our strategies. And some of our strategies are try to prove that we're a good person to ourselves in the world. Some of our strategies are try to be right, don't make a mistake. Some of our strategies are to withdraw and not take chances. Some of our strategies are compulsive behaviors, some of them are addictive behaviors, numb ourselves, numb ourselves. We all have what I call these spacesuit strategies to try to make it through because there's this undercurrent, this existential angst. Now the Buddhist strategy, as I mentioned, was kind of like Sisyphus. He was pushing a boulder up the hill. He was really striving. So he wasn't yet really wise, but he was definitely motivated, right? So then what happened was he was starving, he was 35 years old, he was near death from treating his body so harshly and he finally said to himself, there has to be a better way (laughs) which I thought was like, that's the beginning of things changing (laughs) there has to be a better way and you know how we say that too? that we sometimes just get it, that we're pushing and pushing and judging and judging, that's one of the big strategies judging and judging, blaming and blaming you know, eating ourselves into a bad state of body or drinking ourselves. You know, we finally get, there's got to be a better way to deal with this existential angst. So that's what the Buddha said. And then he had a memory, a spontaneous memory. And in this memory, you'll remember that he was born, his mother hanging onto a tree. Well, in this memory he was leaning against a rose apple tree. It was spring plowing time, and each spring, his father, the king, would take everybody, villagers, everybody would go into these um, fields, and there would be this kind of a a time of gathering, uh, you know, plowing the fields and gathering some fruits. And he was sitting against this rose apple tree, and he noticed in the plowed fields that a lot of the insects had been chopped up by the plowing, and he felt this real... Open hearted tenderness towards the little creatures that inevitably um, died. And he also sensed the beauty of the day. So there was this open heartedness towards the sorrows and this open heartedness towards the beauty. He smelt the fragrance of the trees, the blueness of the sky, the softness of the clouds. And he relaxed in this inclusive presence, senses wide open and I hope this sounds familiar, open to whatever's happening moment to moment. And in that openness, in that receptivity, he entered what was called the first state of absorption, which is really a collectedness and a tranquility very naturally. And the realization that Siddhartha had was that freedom, this inner freedom, is an innate quality of being that even a child can have. Because he had it when he was this child under the rose apple tree. And he realized he had been going about things wrong. He had been striving to spiritually realize himself when he had already, when he was younger, touched that freedom by opening with a kind and awake heart to just the life that's here. This was the Buddha's springtime this is visak, this is the beginning of awakening, to realize that we realize truth and wholeness not by striving, not by trying to get somewhere, but by in this moment relaxing back, awake and open-hearted. And my sense is that for many of us here, and I, I know many of you, and I've talked to many of you, there's that glimmer that really knows that, that there is freedom when we put down our argument with how it is and relax with what's here, relaxing our bodies, relax our heart. In a way, the Buddha, as a young child, said yes. He leaned against the rose apple tree and said yes. Yes. So this is the first reflection this evening, just to take a moment and sense the possibility, the springtime of your own awakening on this path. To sense the possibility, just even right now, of tasting a kind of freedom that comes in just giving yourself permission to relax just that permission to relax the essence of presence is this wakeful ease it doesn't mean the sensations are pleasant it doesn't even mean that there's not other emotions in the heart, but what would happen if you just relaxed into the presence that lets life be, just for a moment right now, completely relaxed? The Buddha found this gateway, under the rose apple tree, that there is a natural, innate freedom when we relax. Now we have a fear that if we relax and we are not vigilant then something bad will happen to us. We have a fear that if we relax we won't do anything. Just to fast forward for a moment, the Buddha spent 45 years after his enlightenment serving So even though he was relaxed, he had that inner freedom that didn't stop him from being totally engaged. But that's our fear, if I relax I'll be some good-for-nothing. We use not being relaxed as a way to try to compensate for a not-okay self. Try it right now, again, just say, okay, permission to relax. So you can open your eyes if you'd like, but you can keep giving yourself permission to relax. You can't lose. If, that's, if you come away from tonight and that's what you come away with, it's springtime, permission to relax. So for the Buddha, when he had that memory, this is the beginning of, of discovering what's called the middle way, which is to not um, strive and not resist, but really to open to the life that is right here with this kind heart. This is the springtime of awakening. So in the Buddhist story, in the myth of the Buddha, he stopped the austerities, he stopped depriving himself. And there's a beautiful story of how he first took some nourishment, um, sweet milks, and um, just gained back his bodily strength. And he found another tree, uh, the papala, the Bodhi tree, that's in what's now called Bodh Gaya, and it was late spring. And he resolved, with his body stronger now, to become still and to open to the mystery, to discover the fullness of the awakened heart-mind. Because now he had a way to practice, a middle way, of being present but not striving. So I just want to, again, just say something about the role of trees in the mythology of, not just um, in Buddhism, but in many of the traditions, common feature, myths of freedom, it's described as the world tree by Joseph Campbell. And it's a place where divine energies pour into the world and where the human encounters the absolute pure awareness and becomes fully realized. In other words, the tree connects heaven or the realm of spirit with this changing bodily, emotional experience. And we discover a way of living and celebrating this life but remembering that sacredness, that presence that's our essence. So in the Buddha's life, the tree birth, he had that rose apple tree when he remembered that childhood experience. And now here we are under the Bodhi tree, which is where his awakening happened um, in a full way. And just to say we've already gotten the basic components of a spiritual path that he realized all that striving and he became very compassionate towards his body, a kind of forgiving, compassionate, okay, nourish this body. And I've found for, in the last thirty years, in working with myself and other people on the path, that there is no one that can sidestep this, this kind of kindness towards our inner life. That because we're so conditioned to be at war with our inner experience, that taking in of the nourishment in the Buddha's myth is so beautiful because We have to find a way to take in kindness from others. We have to find a way to offer and receive our own love. So self-compassion is a basic element in this mythology and in our lives. The Buddha then, as I mentioned, resolved to become still and really discover who he was. And it's the same for us, that we get to a certain point And some of us it's gradual and some of us it's sudden, where we do say, there must be a better way. I don't want to keep judging myself and being harsh to myself. I don't want to stay being at war with others and blaming and always judging. You know, that saying, that anonymous saying, who is it that's unhappy, she or he who finds fault. You know, so there's a sense, I don't want to stay at war, you know. And then there's this inner resolve that happens of, okay, I'm going to deepen my capacity to pay attention. I'm going to pause more. I'm going to awaken my heart. And that's what happened to the Buddha. And that's what we do each week when we come here and say, well, so what is it that matters? There's a way in which we're intentionally reconnecting with our resolve. Lewis Thomas writes, I don't really understand the source of our great cultural sadness, except to see that perhaps we've come so far without really knowing ourselves. So, something in us senses that we're living a life, we're being a human doing, but we have not connected and come home to the beingness that's here. So, the Buddha self-compassion, that sense of resolve, and then finally, out of that sincerity, he paused. And this, again, is a basic element of the spiritual path. We pause. So that rather than this kind of frantic rolling forward into the next thing and the next thing and the doing and the reacting, rather than being uh, that, you know, on our way, we pause. And he paused under the Bodhi tree. And we pause, in any moment where there's that intention to come home, we're under the Bodhi tree. You see the beauty of the myth that that we're always under the Bodhi tree, if we remember. So finally he he paused, he had that resolve, and he brought his now-trained mind to that big inquiry of, really, who am I? What is true? He looked for truth. Now, just to say, even though he was striving over those six years and it was imbalanced and there was a lot of ego, he had developed some capacities of mind that are useful. He knew how to concentrate. He knew how to quiet his thoughts. He knew how to come into his body. So these are some of the trainings we do here, as you notice in the guided meditation. So this is what he brought. But in the most basic way, when he paused under the Bodhi tree, he brought a quality of compassion because he knew he was going to be facing difficult forces or energies that confuse and delude. And he knew that clarity and compassion are what transform those forces. This is the next part of the myth, is what happened under the Bodhi tree? What did he see? What did he realize? And it's described as In this pause he discovered what's through the four watches of the night he saw the radical nature of impermanence something that we intellectually know but he saw in the most direct way how from the smallest speck of dust to the wheeling galaxies everything is in continual change and if we really see how everything, these bodies we're in, the other bodies we're with, the seasons is moving, changing, changing. There is no ground to stand on. We let go of trying to make things solid and find ground. We let go. We let go. This is how Ajahn Chah He said, if you let go a little, you'll find a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of peace. If you let go absolutely, you'll find absolute peace and tranquility." So this is part of what the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree. It's all changing. And when you really see that, the wisdom of impermanence is letting go. That's what happens. So he let go. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream." He also saw that night under the Bodhi tree that any attempt we make to try to control, to try to push away what's unpleasant or cling on to what's pleasant brings suffering. Our sense of self, a sense of separate self solidifies and the more we control the more solid and afraid we get. So there's the letting go and the freedom and realizing that when we don't let go, when we're controlling, we're imprisoned in a sense of separation. Finally, he saw what happened when the forces of Mara attack. And what that means, Mara is the god of greed, hatred, and delusion. And basically, Mara is all the shadow energies It's the fear and the anger, the jealousy, the hatred. It's what each of us has the conditioning that's just alive in us and that the freedom, the freedom of realizing our fullness involves facing these energies. So the drama of the night under the Bodhi tree was how did the Buddha face these energies? And as it was, he faced them, and I sometimes use the gesture like this of really offering compassion inward, he faced Mara with compassion and with clear seeing. Seeing what was happening, oh, fear, anger, ah, the seduction of pleasure, seeing it and bringing a compassionate presence. And it was said that Mara flung all his spears and arrows and daggers and so on, came at the Buddha through the night. This is the mythology of the shadow side. And the Buddha met everything with this heart of compassion, this awake, wise heart. And by early morning there was a pile of flower petals at his feet because all the bows and arrows had been transformed into flower petals. But Mara had not yet withdrawn... And Mara then issued his most biggest challenge to the Buddha. Some of you might know, this this is like, to me, the culmination of the mythology, is this final challenge that Mara issued to the Buddha. And it came like this. He said, who do you think you are? It's the challenge of doubt. It's like, if you have to say, what's our deepest shadow inside? For each one of us it's in some way not trusting the goodness, not trusting the love, not trusting the awareness that really is our essence. It's doubt. So that was the last one. That was the final challenge before the Buddha awoken was this, who do you think you are? And Mara said, I can prove who I am. And he got one of his machismo soldiers to kind of um, proclaim Mara as worthy of, you know, being a being king or whatever. And the Buddha didn't do that. Buddha did not do any kind of a spiritual muscle to prove himself. What the Buddha did in facing that challenge was he put his hand on the earth and he called on the earth goddess to bear witness. And to me that's the most beautiful um, symbology of the whole story of the Buddha is that rather than being a self that was going to transcend and master and and come, you know, face this final challenge. He called on the whole web of life. He called on his belonging to life. He called on nature. He called on love. And as the story goes, when he reached towards that belonging and reached toward... it's kind of a prayer. That, That wisdom in him that just sensed his belonging, prayed to it. At that time... The Earth Goddess responded, you know, affirming the um, sacredness of the Buddha's presence. And at that time, Mara finally withdrew, and the Buddha was awakened, and he was free. Now, just to say, Mara did come back but it was more in a way of, you know, just the conditioning plays itself, but the Buddha every time encountered Mara with the same kind of wise heart and it became just part of the story. But his radical inner freedom was in that moment. And it's the exact same thing with us. Again, the story has no meaning unless it tells us that no matter how much you have the story of something is wrong with me, And I I say that very specifically, that story, something's wrong with me. And you believe it, and no matter how much your body believes it, there is within each of us this capacity to remember our goodness, to reach down and touch the earth on some level, and feel that affirmation of who we really are. The truth of who we are is that golden Buddha it doesn't matter how much conditioning we have that's playing out we all have conditioning the suffering is believing that's what we are I love this poem Awakening Now Dana Folds, the poet, says, why wait for your awakening? she says, do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? forgive yourself forgive yourself Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true nature. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your stories of deficiency and failure. This is the day of your awakening. So that is the message and the invitation of Visa and of the Buddha's enlightenment story. It's not that some guy 2,600 years ago pulled it off. That's just not it. It's that it's our very nature to wake up every one of us. Awareness wants to realize itself. It's living through these human forms and it's part of the evolution of spirituality on this planet that awareness lives through these forms and that awareness recognizes itself in these forms. We realize the presence, that light, that heart, that's essence. So after after his enlightenment, as the story goes, the first few days he was walking around and people would approach him and he probably was looking pretty good, he had just been enlightened, you know, <laughs> and kind of shining and stuff. So he would say, you know, so who are you? You know, are you a saint? You know, Are you a healer? Are you a renunciate? Each time he'd say, no, no, he said, are you a sage? No. And his only response was, I'm awake. I think that's really beautiful. So the next 45 years, as I mentioned, the Buddha traveled through the cities and towns of the Ganges plain and he brought the Dharma to whoever was interested. He was a bodhisattva. And what that means is an awakened being that fully opened to the suffering, let himself be touched by the suffering, and yet so aware of the who we are that he had room for that suffering. It's like if you know you're the ocean, you have room for the waves and you include them. And you know that everyone you meet is part of who you are. And so the bodhisattva path really is what is essential in the Buddhist tradition, that we discover this inner freedom by meeting our moment-to-moment experience, pausing, and meeting whatever it is with kindness, with presence. And from that inner awakeness and openness there's a natural way of moving through the world, the compassion in action. It's as the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. In a, in a more contemporary story, one man was studying the Dharma, that's these teachings, and practicing mindfulness. And I, it's a story i like to share now and then, a a busy executive and he ended up going to a supermarket in the middle of the day at one point because he had to do some shopping and he stood in line. And the woman in front of him only had a few things, but she was in his his line anyway. She could have been in the express line, but she wasn't. And not only that, she had a little girl with her and she handed the little girl to the clerk and so he was fuming because busy executive, important person, on my way, trying to do important things. And all of a sudden he realized, oh, the bodhisattva ideal, you know, oh, here I am, just, you know, judging, blaming. So he just kind of checked in and he felt, and he did just what we're talking about. He felt Mara. He felt the anxiety, kind of that sense of, if I don't get things done on time, my world's going to fall apart and I'll die, <laughs> or people will hate me. And, stayed with it, opened, opened and then he looked and he saw that that little girl was really cute so, so when it was his turn, the woman laughed, took her baby back, laughed he said to the clerk, you know, that child is really adorable and the, the woman smiled and said, oh, thank you actually, that's my little girl, my mom brings her in my husband was in the war and he was killed in the Middle East and so my mom brings the little girl in twice a day so I get to be with her You know, sometimes we can think, well, you know, not everybody's going through such a, a tragedy as that. But the truth is everyone we meet everyone we meet is living in a body that's getting older or that's gonna get sick at some point. We all have losses. We're all living with uncertainty. We're all we're a bit afraid of each other, we're afraid of what others think. We forget that golden Buddha and we live a lot in a sense of failure. And what if we could move through our day and pause, and pause, as the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree, but pause with each other and pause through our lives and see who's here, and see that everybody we look at in some way is, is living with the same fears and the same uncertainties. And everyone that we see is also this awareness that's waking up, is that golden Buddha. My religious kindness. So the the final part of the Buddha's myth, he walked the earth for forty five years, as I mentioned. He had food got food poisoning. I think he was eighty years old, and he was um, far from settled, civilized areas. He usually taught in, and he was with his attendant Ananda, and. Um, Ananda, who was very devoted, said, Lord, you do not want to go to your final rest in this dreary little town with mud walls, this heathen jungle outpost, this backwater and but the Buddha knew he was dying and also he had he had really no concern with external prestige or a place to prop up a sense of importance. And as it turned out, even in those last days when Ellen exhausted, he gave teachings to a passing mendicant, others from the region. But Ananda was distressed and through his life Ananda was kind of a foil whenever the Buddha was going to make a teaching. Ananda would say, yes, but Lord, da-da-da-da. And and then the Buddha would say, not so, Ananda. And then he'd explain it like it was. And it happened this way this time too. He um, said, basically, you may be thinking, Ananda, the word of the teacher is now a thing of the past. Now we have no more teacher, but that's not how you should see it. Let the Dharma and the practices that I've taught you be your teacher when I'm gone. The truths must be living truths, known by your own direct realization. The Buddha's final teachings, there's a a Pali word, ehipasiko, or it's actually a few words. Ehipasiko means come and see for yourself. And I love that because in no way was there an interest in setting himself up as something separate. It was saying each one of us is awareness waking up. And each one of us can look into our own minds and discover that mystery and that freedom. Each of us can pause under the Bodhi tree, that right now we can pause under the Bodhi tree and we can relax. It's not about striving. In fact, the more we relax, the more we begin to trust that it's who we are, it's not someplace else. So the Buddha died under um, twin sal trees this time, but another tree, and they. It's written in the scriptures as a. This is parinibbana. The great nibbana means the extinction of grasping, hatred, and delusion, and parinibbana is when it, when all of the animation of the earthly plane, exists, desists. So he. That's death for an enlightened person. This is how it's written in the scriptures. As a flame blown out by the wind goes to rest and cannot be defined, so the enlightened one freed from selfishness goes to rest and cannot be defined, gone beyond all images, gone beyond the power of words. So the Buddha was born under a tree with all that potential As the Tibetans say, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind, shining and deathless. He was born with the potential to realize that. He awakened under the Bodhi tree and experienced his parinibbana under the trees. And it's the exact same process for each one of us when we feel in our hearts this longing to wake up, when we pause, and when we deepen our attention. So I'd like to close, we'll do a short sitting, and then we'll be chanting the refuges. You have your sheets here. So we'll do a short guided meditation with the refuges, which I think you'll find as a natural way to close the Visakh ceremony. But first, just take a moment before we start chanting if you will, to close your eyes. Just to close your eyes and pause because this whole pathway home starts with pausing. Let your senses be awake, listening. Relax your body Relax your heart O nobly born O you of glorious origins Remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind, shining and deathless. The refuges are gateways of remembering. A refuge is a place of safety and belonging, of realizing the truth of what is. The first of the refuges of these archetypal pathways is described as refuge in Buddha nature, which is the very awareness itself, refuge in this wakeful presence that's listening, this tender heart that feels the moment. To take refuge in Buddha nature is to turn towards the luminous openness of your own awareness, to recognize and let go into that luminosity. To take refuge in the Dharma, the second refuge, is to entrust yourself to the changing moment-to-moment experience relaxing with what's here refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the truth of what's right here be it fear, sorrow, excitement, mystery pausing and relaxing with what's here refuge in the Dharma. To take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in the field of relatedness, in the love that arises when we feel our belonging with each other. when we take refuge in any of these gateways they reveal each other so if you'd like to take your paper up if you're not familiar with these and just chant along just feel your heart, and chant with your heart Namo Tassa, bhagavato Arahato, sama, sam Buddha, sama, Namo Thasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, sama, Namo to y'all. this season of Visak may we each be blessed to recognize and trust and live from the radiance of our true nature. May all beings be blessed to touch into the loving presence of their hearts, to touch into great and natural peace. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste.